Scripture reading today is from Psalm chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I'll give you a second if you want to follow along with me. Uh, I'm going to be reading 20 verses, and it might seem like a lot, but I think it'll be good, and I think it'll help. Psalm chapter 9. David is the psalmist, and he writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known, he has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. I think... In the four plus years that I have pastored here, I have never talked about my master's thesis, and it's with very good reason. It is hopelessly boring. (laughs) That said, while I was researching for it, I began to be interested in strange things. So there is a great Greek grammar by a guy named Daniel Wallace who studied at Dallas Theological Seminary. If you want to know biblical languages, and I, oddly enough, had wanted to know them from the time I was a boy, Daniel Wallace's grammar is the best modern grammar. But as I was doing my master's thesis, I began to learn that I couldn't rely on it completely 
that I had to think for myself, that I had to do my own research. And what I began to notice again and again was how often Wallace actually cited this guy that I'd never heard of before named A.T. Robertson. So I started being curious about A.T. Robertson. I found out that he published a Greek grammar in about 1914, I think was the first edition. So at that time, it was exactly 100 years old, and I went and I found a copy, and when I was searching the library, I also discovered that there was a biography on A.T. Robertson. And I thought, I have reached a new low of nerdiness if I want to read a biography of a grammarian. But I knew enough about his grammar that when he was writing, number one, he understood the scriptures deeply. If I had a question about a verse, I could look in the index and see if Robertson wrote about it, and his insight was always helpful. And when I read the introduction to his grammar, again, a new low of of nerdiness, I learned that he had a passion for linguistics that was unheard of. A hundred years ago, linguistics was a brand new discipline. And this American scholar was learning languages like Hindi, which almost no Westerner had ever studied, not because the Bible was written in Hindi, but because he was able to be a better grammarian as he studied difficult foreign languages. His scholarship was unparalleled. It was incredible. And then I discovered that not only was he a genius of a scholar, but he had the heart of a Christian who loved Jesus. And in the end of his grammar, he has this note where he says he's written this to help those who study the word of God so that they could learn Greek, so that they could understand more accurately what the scriptures say. But he said, my heart is not just so that you would know the scriptures in your head, but that people like D.L. Moody, maybe the greatest evangelist of his day, we would think of like a Billy Graham, somebody that that packs stadiums, that that preaches the good news of Jesus, that we can be forgiven. A.T. Robertson says he writes his Greek grammar so that people like Billy Graham and and D.L. Moody could preach the gospel and know the scriptures accurately. So A.T. Robertson combined two things that I love. He combined the best of academic scholarship with a heart that loved Jesus, that wanted to see people saved. And so this man became one of my heroes. And so when I found out that there was a biography about him, I thought, awesome. And I grabbed it off the shelf, and I took it home, and it was only later that I thought of, like, the low that I had sunk to. And as I began to read, I learned some some beautiful and tragic things. I learned that when he was a young man, his daughter died, and he, he held her little body, and he wept, and he just prayed to Jesus and said, Jesus, you healed little girls. Why didn't you heal my little girl?" And you could see the depth of his faith, and you could see his grief. And you could see that his faith was real. And yet the thing that stands out to me the most about that biography is not his little girl. It's the fact that I learned that A.T. Robertson grew up on an American plantation, and that his family abused hundreds of slaves in America. And that the man that I admired, who had become a kind of hero to me, not only fought for the South in the Civil War, 
but that he was insanely proud of his family name and the plantation that he had grown up on. And to my knowledge, he never repented of the sins of abuse and slaveholding. This man who claimed to love Jesus, and I believe he did love Jesus. This man was guilty of one of the worst sins that has ever existed on American soil. And this week, the passage that I have to preach in 1 Peter is a passage that American slaveholders would have used to justify slavery in America. And before I go through it, line by line, like I believe we faithfully must do if we love the Scriptures and take the Word of God seriously, I want to address this issue of slavery in America and of slavery in Christianity. Because, and I want to speak especially to some of our younger people, this this is a question that matters if you're older, but especially if you are in school and if you are going off to college, if you haven't already, you will hear people say, how can you follow a God who allowed slavery? You will hear the question, how can you follow a God that inspired a Bible that supported the slavery in the South. And there's no denying that people who called themselves Christians did do this. They used passages like 1 Peter 2 that begins, Slaves. Or if you have a Bible that tries to to paint it in slightly rosier pictures, it might say servants. And that's about the best that they can do to make a little bit of a distinction. So before we go to 1 Peter, I want to demonstrate to you from the Word of God exactly what God thinks of slavery. And so I've entitled this message, God Speaks on Slavery, because He speaks on it, and He speaks very, very loudly. Some people, when they talk about this topic, they they might do, and in, in fact, I have done in the past, something like this. You can look at the evils of the African slave trade and American slavery. How they would describe how a ship in Africa was loaded with 600 people and when it arrived in America, 400 of them would be dead and no one cared. You can hear of the whippings, of the sexual abuse. You can hear of all of the horrific, nightmarish, hellish things that happened in the American institution of slavery Then you can pause and say, slavery in the New Testament world was different, and it was. And, in fact, when I preached the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus has some passages where it talks about slavery in Israel. And you can say things like, slaves were set free in the year of Jubilee. There was no such thing as perpetual slavery for the Jewish people. So you can say, there's a difference. It's not the same. But the problem is, it was still evil in the New Testament. The question when you come to something like slavery is not, why did God allow slavery, but why does God allow evil at all? And I want to pause for just a moment with this particular type of evil and say a couple of things. You can point out things, and I did when we went through Exodus, 
Exodus 21, 16, God clearly says that anyone who steals a person and sells him or her is to be put to death. The penalty for man-stealing or woman-stealing or whatever you want to call it in the Old Testament is death. God did not allow something like what happened in the African slave trade in Israel. And it was not permitted among New Testament Christians. So there's that. But even that doesn't help completely. So I was talking to my buddy Ernesto, and, and he was preaching through Exodus, and he got to the same chapter that I had preached through about two years earlier. He said, dude, what did you do? So I told him how I handled the passage. And he said, yeah, that's, that's true, that's right. But God allowed his people to have slaves from Egypt and from surrounding countries, and they didn't experience the benefits of the year of Jubilee. And their children were born into slavery and stayed in slavery. And, and, and I said, you're right, but Exodus doesn't talk about that. And so in a message on Exodus, I didn't talk about that. And that's true. It's more complicated than I made it seem when I went through Exodus. And I think I was faithful to the text, and I hope that it was helpful. But if you trace slavery, Genesis to Revelation, throughout the Bible, what you find is there are terrible evils that God permitted among his own people. And in the New Testament world, when Rome was the dominant power, the people of God have no political authority. In the New Testament... When the good news of Jesus is preached, they don't do a lot to try to undo the evils of slavery. Instead, they address slaves on an equal status of free people and give them the hope of the gospel. So ultimately, I want to talk a little bit about what Christianity does with evil institutions in the world. But before we do that, we need to see some things. We need to see them very clearly about the character of God. And so before we go anywhere else, I want to say this loud and clear. God avenges the slave. That's my first point today. God avenges the slave. One of the challenges about this particular sermon is that there is so much evidence for that. I could have given you probably 50 Bible verses that demonstrate how God is the avenger of the slave. But I'm just going to give you one. If you look at Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6, Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6, the whole story of Exodus describes how God rescued his people. Chapter 2 ends saying how God heard their groaning in slavery. And when he heard, he acted. He was faithful to his promise. And Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 says this. Say therefore to the people of Israel, he's speaking to Moses. Moses is going to go on behalf of God and talk to the people I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." As you catch that, there are two things that are there. It's not just that he is rescuing them and bringing them out of Egypt. Did you catch that very important statement that he says that 
that he is the one who will judge the Egyptians? It's the very last thing in verse 6. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. You can read through the plagues that God pours out on Egypt. You can understand that he is judging the sin of Egypt. And part of the sin of Egypt was the cruelty of the slavery that they imposed upon the Hebrew people. You can read about how they were murdering baby boys because they were afraid of the strength of the Hebrew people. You can read about the horrific suffering that God's people endured and know this, that the judgment God pours out on Egypt is an act of His justice because of the sins of Egypt. God avenges the slave. He is the great liberator. You might say, well, that was true in Exodus for the people of God. Was that true anywhere else? And I add this. Not only does God avenge the slave in Exodus, God clearly warns His people that if they abuse the slaves that they were in His plan permitted to have, Deuteronomy 28.68 says this, To the people that God has freed, the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Now what's happening? God warns His freed people That if they rebel against him, they will go back into slavery. And he warns his people that he will judge them just like he judged the Egyptians. And it's not only in Deuteronomy. You find, if you remember from from the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 9 and Nehemiah 9, two hugely important passages in the Bible, demonstrate so clearly, they look back to this passage in Deuteronomy. Both Ezra and Nehemiah do in chapter 9. And both of them say that the way God sold His people into slavery to the Babylonians was a direct fulfillment of His warning on them. You can read all of the prophets. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah are so abundantly clear that the people of God would be sold into slavery particularly because of the way they abused the poor. So God didn't just care when the Hebrew people were suffering in Egypt. He cared when the Egyptian person was suffering in Israel. And when the Israelites broke the law of God and failed to keep His commandments, God sold them into slavery. And you can read the broken-hearted Ezra and the broken-hearted Nehemiah. Both of them say, God, we are slaves today because of the sins of their fathers and grandfathers. God avenges the slave not just in Egypt, but in Israel. Not only that, you can read again and again and again how God would pour out His judgment on places like Assyria and Babylon because of the way they wrongfully enslaved the Israelites. So you think, wait a minute, this is just too confusing. God sells His people into slavery as a punishment to them 
And then he punishes the people that enslaved them? Yes, because even though God allowed it, it was wrong. And we are responsible for the sins we commit, even when God in his wisdom sovereignly uses them to discipline others. And so God pours out his judgment on Assyria and Babylon. It's all over the Old Testament. And so often God's wrath is an expression of his love for the poor and the oppressed and the slave. When he warns Babylon and Assyria that they will be utterly destroyed, he acknowledges, I used you to judge my people. But you willfully enslaved and abused and broke them. You can read about it in one of my favorite books, Habakkuk, one of the first books that I preached through as a pastor here. God uses the Babylonians and then warns them, I'll judge you because of the sins that you committed. And so it's clear again and again and again that God avenges the slave, not just in the Old Testament. Let me give you a New Testament passage. And I frankly believe that if A.T. Robertson and other American Christians had read this with one ounce of honesty, it should have brought them to their knees. This is from the book of James. This principle is true, not just in the Old Testament that God avenges the slave, but listen to what James says. James chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 to you. James, writing to Christians now, because we're not dealing with nations, we're dealing with Christians. James says, come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Think for a moment about a plantation older. They didn't just withhold wages. They beat their slaves if they didn't work hard enough. There was no wage to be thought of. And God says, I have heard the cries of your slaves. And you ought to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You might think that the Bible records history of God's judgment on countries like Assyria and on countries like Babylon Have you ever thought about the history of God's judgment on America? I remember asking the question when 9-11 happened, is God judging? And some pastors would immediately say, yes, we deserve the judgment of God. He's calling us to our knees to repent. Other pastors would say, no, absolutely not. God would never allow something like that to happen. But listen to what Abraham Lincoln said in his second inaugural address. I think Abraham Lincoln had more courage than most pastors have today. Listen how Abraham Lincoln understood the Civil War. He said, if we suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove 
and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Pause for a second. Civil War is one of the bloodiest wars in American history. Over 600,000 Americans died. And Abraham Lincoln says it was the woe that was due to those who committed the offense of American slavery both north and south. In our modern times, we like to think that the North was totally innocent. Abraham Lincoln understood there was more complexity than that. He knew that there were rich Northerners who profited from the slave trade while they sold slaves to the South where they worked. And so he understood that there was no such thing as an innocent country when it came to the sin of slavery. He said this evil war was due to those by whom the offense of slavery came. And he continues, he says, Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass by. Yet if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Did you catch what he said? He's saying that the blood that was shed on the battlefield was a righteous judgment for the blood that was shed in the cotton field. I cannot imagine a pastor, and certainly not a president, ever admitting that God poured out his judgment on America for our sins the way Abraham Lincoln so clearly says. And please hear me, I am not saying we had a civil war so the sin of slavery is done with, we're free and clear. Abraham Lincoln's not saying that either. He's saying we are under the judgment of God and it is his will and his decision when this war ends and whatever justice he decides to mete out to this country is his to give. I am not saying that people in America have stopped sinning, or that even slavery worldwide has ended. There are so many organizations that say things like, there are more slaves in the world today than there ever have been in human history. And I believe that's true. I believe that's right. Human trafficking is an evil that happens in America still to this day. And in fact, if you are committing the sin of lust with pornography, you are part of the problem. And so we must tremble before a God who avenges the slave. God ultimately will judge the entire world. God's wrath is not finished because the civil war ended. God's wrath is not finished until Jesus returns and you see the nations called to account And God judges both the living and the dead. 
What I am saying very clearly is that God hates slavery. He has judged it in the past. He will judge it in the future. Do not think for a moment that biblically faithful Christianity can tolerate the evils of slavery. It can't because God can't. And while God is patient and merciful, unless people repent and plead the blood of Jesus on their sins, God will judge them for their sins. Slavery and every other sin. And the wrath of God is a terrifying thing. So many people read the Old Testament and wonder how God can be a God of love. But here's the truth. His wrath is an expression of love for the slave. He is avenging the downtrodden and the poor. And it ought to make us tremble. So not only does God avenge the slave, point two, God redeems the slave. God redeems the slave. Here again, I could point to probably 50 verses in the Bible or more. We could look at Exodus, how God redeemed his people. We could look at Ezra and Nehemiah, how he redeemed them again a second time. We could look at at the Gospels and how Jesus leads his people. How John the Baptist describes the, the liberty and freedom that comes with Christ. And John doesn't even fully understand what Jesus is about to do. But I'm just going to give you a couple of verses here. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Sometimes God literally, physically rescues a slave out of slavery. But this is what is offered to every person. And this is unthinkable in the first century that it would also be offered to slaves. Galatians 3, starting in verse 26 I hate to jump in in the middle of, middle of the sentence, but, but for the sake of time, Paul is writing, he says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Now pause for a second. Sons in the ancient world had rights. They enjoyed inheritance. They enjoyed power and authority in the household. And what Jesus is saying through the Holy Spirit, through Paul's pen, is that when you believe in Christ Jesus, you are granted the full rights of sonship through faith. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Greek, no black, no white, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male, there is no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now stop for a second. This verse is not saying that we become this weird sort of all the same person kind of thing. Like There's no such thing as a legitimate global Christian culture. Christianity ought to look different in Africa, and it ought to look different in China, and it ought to look different in America. It even ought to look different in the South and in the North. What happens is we are all granted the same status in Christ. But as sons and daughters of God, as we are redeemed, our cultures begin to worship the living God with all the beautiful cultural distinctives that we have. So I think... 
holly, like our, our worship and holly ought to have a little bit of a rockabilly flavor. We ought to enjoy a little bit of a country twang with a distorted guitar. And our worship in Kentucky will have a bluegrass flavor. And worship in other countries, if you listen to a Chinese church worship, it's not going to sound the same as an American church. And that's a good and a beautiful thing. We celebrate diversity and we maintain some of that diversity, but the diversity does not divide. There's no hierarchy. When Paul says that that there's no man or woman, we don't give up the genders that God gave us when he created us. We celebrate them. They're beautiful. They're awesome. But there's no power distinction because our gifts are different. So when Paul is saying there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no slave or free, there's no male, there's no female, all are one in Christ, the same salvation, the same rights of sonship are given to everyone. And this is dynamite because in the ancient world, if you were married to a man, he decided what God you worshipped. Period. You didn't have the privilege of saying, I'm going to go to this temple and worship this deity if you were a woman. But the message of Christianity said, we will baptize you in the name of Jesus and you'll be a daughter of God with the full rights of a son. And if you were a slave, you had no freedom. And the message of Christianity was, we will baptize you in the name of Jesus. And you might live in a household where you have an earthly master, but you are free in Christ and you are a son of the Most High God. And so God not only an avenger of the slave, God redeems the slave. And I think one of the most precious books in so many ways in in the New Testament is the book of Philemon, and and it's so short. Uh, Someday I'll I'll preach through it. I want to spend more time here than I have, but but for the sake of time, I'm just going to point you to one verse. This is the story of a slave named Onesimus who ran away from his earthly master Philemon. Onesimus was not a believer in Jesus. And as he was running away from slavery, he ran into the Apostle Paul. In verse 10, Paul is writing this letter to Philemon, and he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now here's what happened. Onesimus runs to Paul. Paul says, you need the forgiveness that's available in Jesus Christ. And Onesimus realizes that he is a sinner, that apart from the forgiveness that God offers, that he will actually suffer under the wrath of Almighty God for the sins that he has committed. Probably there was some theft involved when he ran away. He would have needed money. Paul makes reference to that later in this short letter. And Onesimus would have recognized that he was a thief at the very least. And he believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is baptized in the name of Jesus. He is made a son of the most high God through faith in Christ. And Paul writes this short little letter that flips ancient slavery completely on its head. Some in America use this letter to say, See, Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon. Slavery's fine. They didn't read it carefully. Because Paul says to Philemon, you need to receive him as a brother. 
You don't enslave your brother. You don't beat your brother. And Paul says, if there's anything that he owes you, I want you to charge it to my account, and I want you to recognize that you owe me your life. Why? Because unless Philemon had heard the gospel from Paul, he would be dead in his sins under the wrath of God. And Paul is saying to Philemon, listen, you owe me your life, man. How dare you? How dare you be angry with your brother who is a son of the Most High God for some piddly little thing that he took from you? If you're upset about it, charge it to my account. And don't forget that you owe me your life. This precious little book shows why within a few hundred years, the ancient world no longer tolerated slavery the way it did in the first century. And it shows why godly Christians who read all of the Bible could not tolerate slavery in Europe or in America. Because God redeems the slave. For Onesimus, that was literal and immediate. He was released, and history tells us Onesimus actually became a bishop in the church. He had authority that, honestly, Philemon probably never had. And so for some slaves, their liberty was immediate. But that wasn't true for many, many slaves. And so next week we'll see in 1 Peter how, first, how the Apostle Peter wrote to those who very likely remained slaves. Now it is true, first century slavery was a little bit different. It was possible for slaves to purchase their freedom. You find references in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, if you can, pursue your freedom. Because it's better to be free than to be a slave. You have more ability to serve the Lord. You have more ability to give generously as you earn your own wages. And so Paul believed in seeking freedom, but that wasn't the first priority of New Testament Christianity. The church did not attempt to overthrow the power of Rome and the state. They didn't attempt to stop the slave trade from the top down. Instead, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ both to Philemon and to Onesimus, both to master and to slave. And when both were baptized into Jesus Christ, they became equals in the church. Last February, I went to a conference, and every year, for over 30 years, they've done a biography of a, a Christian, usually a pastor, to just give other pastors a little bit of help. Uh, sometimes, encouragement to say, look at the things that this guy experienced, and this is some wisdom that he had after being a pastor for 50 years, and it is helpful, and it is encouraging. But I learned about a guy named Lemuel Haynes, who was a pastor in early America. He was a slave for the first 18 years of his life. Lemuel Haynes, when people asked him, why do you think God is permitting slavery? And he hated it. It was evil. He lived under it. He never knew his mom. Lemuel Haynes said, I believe a part of the purpose of God is so that when slave and master are saved and worship together in the same church, an unbelieving world wonders what on earth just happened. Because it doesn't make sense. How in the world... Could a slave forgive their abusive master? How in the world can an arrogant master humble himself 
and recognize his proper place in the church of God. It only happens when God does a work in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and He leads you to confess your sins and to trust in the grace of Jesus that unites people who are radically different. God redeems the slave. He also redeems the master. And through the power of the gospel, both slaves and masters were forgiven of their sins and treated as equals within the church. In the first century, Christianity spread like wildfire throughout the ancient world because of the hope of Jesus that was real for oppressed and broken slaves. The fact that Almighty God would humble Himself and die for a slave tells you that He is a God of love. God doesn't just say, I love you. He shows it when He sends His Son to die on the cross. Scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it actually teaches in a sort of universal slavery. Jesus said, in fact, one of the songs we sang today, this passage from the song, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Paul, writing in the book of Romans, says to average people, you might consider yourself a free person. Everyone here is. But he says, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Many people believe that they are walking in freedom when they reject the scriptures and what God has to say about what sin is. Many people celebrate sin and act as if they are going to enjoy life because they've thrown off the yoke of Christianity and they no longer need to be faithful to their spouse or they no longer need to identify as a man or as a woman and it doesn't matter who their significant other is. The scripture teaches that when you think you're in that kind of freedom, you are really in the bondage of slavery and the end of that slavery is despair and death. It's not love to encourage someone in sin because their sin will lead them to death. Paul says, but now that you've been set free from sin, and that happens through faith in Jesus, when you are set free from sin, you become slaves of God, and the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And then he says, this is one of the verses so many people can quote, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God redeems the slave, sometimes very literally like he does in Exodus, sometimes like he does for Philemon, but always, always he redeems from the slavery of sin through the blood of Jesus. He promises that you can be set free today from your sin 
And for all who are oppressed, he promises justice in the future. Not only does God redeem the slave, the the last thing that that I have for you this morning is God empowers the slave. That's a sentence that almost doesn't make sense. What what do I mean when I say God empowers the slave? Well, well, there are a couple of truths that give you strength and hope no matter what your situation or circumstance is. And you can look at passages like Genesis 50, verse 20. Okay, we're not going to go there for the sake of time. Joseph is sold into slavery as a young man by his brothers. And at the end of his life, his brothers are there. Joseph has been rescued out of slavery. He's now the number two man in Egypt, and his brothers are humbled coming before him. They're terrified that he's going to seek revenge on them. And Joseph says, Genesis 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And Joseph found the faithfulness of God as a slave and as a prisoner. And not only did Joseph find the faithfulness of God, God worked to bring about the salvation of His people as Joseph saved them from starving in a famine. In other words, the ground principle that sustains you in suffering is that when you can't see what God is doing, whether it's the death of a child or a virus or something horrible, when you can't see what God is doing, you can trust that He's working it for good in your life. God is able to take terrible evil and work it out for good. Again, Joseph experienced literal freedom in this life, but not every slave does. And so the last verse that I want to point you to is Luke 16.25. Luke 16 has one of the most terrifying passages of all the Bible. Jesus describes the reality of hell in some of the most vivid terms in all of the Bible. It is a terrible place that Jesus clearly believed was real. And in Luke 16.25, he's talking about a rich man who had everything in luxury. He did not care about the suffering of the poor. And when he died, he woke up in hell and anguish and in torment. There's a poor man named Lazarus. And look with me, I'm going to start in verse 24 where the, the rich man is speaking. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue. For I'm in anguish in this flame. In other words, he wants this poor man to still act like his slave, even though they've died. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And Jesus describes this as justice. See, the hope for someone who's suffering is not only can God work good through great evil. Many people will not see justice in this life, but there is the hope that God will bring justice in the next life. Sometimes God brings it soon. Sometimes we wait, but always there is justice. That's why we celebrate through songs like O Holy Night, where we sing things like, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. That's empowering, because it gives you hope. 
And it's a hope that no one can take from you. And I don't want you to miss this. I am not saying it's okay to not care about justice. It's okay to overlook evil because God's going to take care of it in the end. It's not fine. It's evil. God will judge those responsible. James warns Christians who are rich and comfortable that misery is coming upon them unless they repent. The Bible does not teach Christians to just be unengaged and uncaring. In history, we've talked about how God humbled entire nations for this sin. I believe He humbled America once for this sin. And if in God's patience... The wicked prosper for a time. In the end, God will hold them accountable. We ought to tremble and be warned. I'm also not saying that because God will restore justice in eternity, social justice doesn't matter now. It does. We ought to oppose evil as Christians. And we can thank God for Christians like William Wilberforce and Frederick Douglass who fought tirelessly to end slavery because they believed in the Bible. And we should be like them and champion the cause of the unborn, of the poor, of the immigrant, and of the minority. But let me be loud and clear. The church goes wrong when it puts social justice first. The first task of the Christian is to worship at the feet of Jesus, to lay hold of the forgiveness of sins through His blood, and to preach that gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a message that applies both to abusers and the abused, both to oppressors and the oppressed. We all come to the feet of Jesus for forgiveness. And that's why you find the writers of the New Testament addressing both slaves and masters. They're not justifying slavery. They're trying to save everyone. The New Testament teaches that both slave and master need the forgiveness of sins. The one is not innocent and the other is not beyond redemption. And while they are made one in Christ... When they are made one in Christ, then the old institution of slavery falls apart. It's what happens in Philemon. It's what happened in history in early Christianity. I believe it's what happened in America. That's why many of our American abolitionists were believers. They didn't fault Christianity. They faulted hypocritical Christians who didn't obey the Bible. People love to celebrate men like Frederick Douglass, but many times people miss the fact that he was a preacher. Like a prophet, he hated the hypocritical faith of slave-holding Christians. But he did not hate Christianity. He loved Jesus, and he preached the Bible. He used the Bible to show the hypocrisy of the American church. He condemned both those who supported the slaver and those who did nothing to stop it. But he believed that the thing that every person needed was the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. So I've got a couple of people I gave heads up before this message. I said, I think maybe this is a message that you'll care about, that will interest you. There's a type of person that says, I'm not going to become a Christian because Christianity excuses abuse and allows evil to exist. And if that's you today, I want to say to you very directly, don't make excuses. Recognize that you need the forgiveness of God. You can use slavery and say, I can't believe in a God who allows that. Stop. God will deal with every injustice in horrifying ways that are frightening. 
recognize you need to repent and be forgiven for your sins or you will not be standing with the righteous celebrating God's justice. You will be condemned with the wicked experiencing his wrath. So I want to warn you today in love. Today is the day when you repent. Today is the day when you say, I need the blood of Jesus to cleanse me from my sins. Today is the day when you say, I want to be baptized in the name of Jesus so that I never have to experience the justice and judgment of God. Recognize the message of Scripture is not only that God in His wrath will judge the horrific evils of history with perfect justice, it's that God will judge my sin with perfect justice. And He has either judged it completely on the cross of Jesus Christ, and I cling to His blood and escape His wrath, or... He will judge it in me in hell for all of eternity. Those are the only options. If you think that you do not need to repent because you can find Christians who have done wicked things in history, you yourself are a hypocrite. You need grace. You need forgiveness. Be warned of the wrath of God and today repent. Christian, for some of you, You've expressed weariness that race is still an issue in America. And I want to say to you today, be patient. Be patient. There are people who have been victims of racism and of suffering who are in grief and in fear. Be patient. Don't use the New Testament to say, we're all one in Christ. We have a beautiful unity when there is a history of division and pain that still has not been overcome in the American church. Pray for true diversity. Pray for racial unity in the church. This congregation does not represent the ethnic diversity of Holly, and I wish it did. Pray that God would move us towards a greater unity in the church. And Christian, when you talk with someone who says, I can't be a Christian because of the evils of slavery, be patient, be kind. Love them with the truth of Jesus. Recognize that it takes time to trust in the goodness of God. So be faithful to pray. Be faithful to pray for those who don't believe. Be faithful to pray for peace and justice in our own country. Be willing to speak and act on behalf of the oppressed. And as I close this message, I want to pray on our behalf. And maybe you're here or maybe you're watching online and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian Maybe this message has helped you understand how God deals with the evils of history. I don't know, but I just want to pray for you and invite you now to recognize that you need the forgiveness of God. And if you're in a place when you know that you need to call on Him in faith, I want to invite you to pray with me. Let's pray right now. Father in heaven, God, I praise you for your mercy that you offer forgiveness to guilty sinners. God, I ask that you would help us to rest completely that Jesus gave himself on our behalf so that we could be forgiven and cleansed and made whole. Father, I pray for your mercy. I ask for your help and strength for obedience for those who are frightened, who who feel your call on their hearts, but they're resisting it. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would overcome their resistance. God, I pray that they would surrender you to completely that they would want to be baptized to show their faith in Christ.
pray that you would move them right now to make a commitment to be believers in Jesus. They would have the courage to tell me about it later. Father, for the the broken American church that, that longs to be healed and diverse, I pray that you would forgive us for our apathy, forgive us for our laziness, And I pray that you would heal our divisions. I pray that you would remind us again of the beauty of the gospel and of your love, not only for us, but for our brothers and sisters, for your love for the lost, for your love for the oppressed. Let us celebrate your goodness now so that when Jesus returns, it is the beginning of an unending, eternal worship service where we are overwhelmed by your goodness. God, I pray that you would let us escape your wrath in your great mercy through the blood of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There are precious
you this morning, if the Lord has spoken to your heart, maybe you realize you need baptism, you can contact us through our website if you're watching online. If you got my cell phone number, you can text me, come up, talk to me after service. I want to help you be obedient to whatever the Lord has laid on your heart to do. Church, if you're already a believer, let's be faithful to pray for God's healing on the church. He would heal our community in Holly that blacks and whites would be able to worship together, Hispanics, that, that we would be one church like God describes heaven would be. Next week, I'll be preaching on that message in First Peter. And it's my prayer that this message will make that message helpful as we understand what God has to say to us. Maybe you feel like you're stuck in a situation you can't escape. Peter's got some hope to give you. So I want to encourage you to be in prayer. Let me dismiss you. The benediction from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.